Ken Campbell, The Seekers Podcast. Walk about, snell, spit, day, long, day, long, last one, half one, long, everyone, something, corrupted, finish yet, time. Greetings, Seekers, and uh, hilarious. Welcome to Ken Campbell, The Seekers Podcast, hosted by me, Daisy Campbell, Ken's daughter, and David Bramwell. At the end of August 2018, there was a 10th anniversary event at the British Library, which you hosted, didn't you, Daisy? And there was a, a panel conversation... Which on, you hosted. Which I hosted yeah. uh, on stage. Um, and I was, I was kind of a bit overwhelmed at having the largest chair when I was sat next to such, you know, sort of giants of theatre and comedy, <laughs> like, uh, like your mum, uh, Prunella Chi, and Nina Conti, and, and Terry Johnson, and, uh, and Toby Jones. Yeah, it's a great lineup. It was, it was. And they uh, had some wonderful stuff to say. Fantastic. And so this is a recording of the conversations that we had, and those four people who, for whom Ken was a really important part of their lives, chatting and, and, and sharing their memories. That's right. So it's the... <laughs> what is it? Mark knows. Um, so... Fuck, I can't think what it is. The British Library. The British Library, 10th, 10th, anniver- 10th anniversary. What, what was that? The what British the- Library, 10th anniversary panel discussion. It had a title as well, didn't it? What uh, I Learned from Ken Campbell. Right, and we've put all those together now. So the... The, the 10th anniversary... No, the British Library, 10th anniversary discussion... The British Library, 10th anniversary panel discussion entitled What I Learned from Ken Campbell. Very good. In my lifetime, and there have been three great comedic thinkers, Spike Milligan, it's always to do with a collision, a comedic collision. And Spike Milligan had this weird thing about there were things you could see that were funny and there were things you could hear that was funny. So he invented things that were only funny if you saw them, but you couldn't see them, you could only hear them. So he invented invisible slapstick. Yeah? <laughs> Uh, that was Spike's great gift. It's a kind of collision of two things. And uh, uh, then there's Peter Cook, who, who collided satire with the surreal, two completely opposed modes of thought, and they clash in, in, in the Spike brilliance. And Ken, for me, is up there with them. For Ken, I think the collision was something to do with the, the universal... And, and the mundane, mm. that, that something very small can be something very big, that you can, you can talk about the universe as if it's a matchbox, you can talk about a matchbox as if it's a universe. Um, and, and this was constant in, in, in the way he spoke. You know, he didn't drink for a long time at the end of his life, and I didn't know this, I offered him a drink once, and his response was, no, I've had mine. <laughs> so, <laughs> a glass of beer becomes a universal concept of, of how you live a life yeah I, it, it seems to me that absolutely anything um, could be made to be funny or, there, or has its funny side but um I mean, with certain things and issues, you, 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 you wouldn't get thanked for pointing that out. I mean, you might well get strung up, <laughs> but it nonetheless does. 
and um, I've had many thoughts regarding that. I've, like, like, you know, folk who put on very serious stuff. Well, should they be permitted to if they don't at least secretly know what the funny side is or where that is to be seen? Maybe you have not got the proper, real, I don't know, objective or artist's vision on the thing, you know, to be mounting this stuff unless you actually know what the funny side is. Whether I'm going to be serious or or not in anything I I do, I don't. Um, I don't really f feel that it's an issue or something that I've got hold of, unless I could be funny about it if I wished. Do you mean? What? That's, I suppose, just my, that's my stance. I'm really not giving this out as what everyone has to do, but that's my stance on it. Hey. Thank you very much. I'd like to welcome to the stage on our left, uh, Prunella G. Pru is Ken's ex-wife. Is, is that how you like to be described? Absolutely correct. <laughs> <laughs> very important, the ex-bit. <laughs> and former actress or still actress? No, former. Former actress former. and psychotherapist. Yes. And a doctor. And doctor. And Nina Conti, who is entertainer, comedian and ventriloquist. Correct. Good. Uh, Terry Johnson, playwright, dramaturgist and writer. <laughs> and I can't say that word, but those three things. Most certainly. Yes. Good, good, good. And Toby Jones? Actor. Actor. Very simple. <laughs> <laughs> because the, uh, the event is called What I Learned from Ken Campbell, I'm going to open with that question to, to the four of you, starting with, um, starting with Toby. When I first met Ken, was after, I went with Toby, the actor Toby Sedgwick to see Pigspurt in 1992, and I was so blown away, so ecstatic, uh, as one is after uh, major theatrical moments where you... You sort of don't want to let the moment go. So you think, if I can get close to the performer, then maybe I can sustain this moment. Mm -hmm. And it can mean more because the performer might know why I'm feeling so ecstatic about this show. <laughs> and I, uh, so I went to, uh, I went, and as, as is the way often with great comedians, you know, there's, it's a terrible anticlimax because <laughs> I sat down with Toby, who knew Ken from a show they'd done together at the National. And I just was in awe of Ken, as a lot of people are and were. And um, he was not just aggressive towards me, he, was, he just sort of blanked me, completely <laughs> blanked me. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, and, and it was only later, when I got involved with, with him doing various things with Daisy and stuff like that, that I began to understand um, he was really only interested... And this is what I take as the great lesson from him. In people who just say, yes, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, yes. So he'd ring you and he'd say, what are you doing on Friday, Toby? And I'd go, uh, what, why? And he'd go, uh, Friday, 7pm, 7, 7 what are you doing? And I'd go, no, no, I, I said, why? Why, Ken? And he'd go, are you free at 7pm on Friday? <laughs> Yes, I am, Ken. Yes, I am free. And you go, okay, so be by the van, outside, the, you know, and, I, and then, you, then, you, then something begins. So he's only really interested in you saying yes. Nina's doing a show. You need to be at her door at 2pm on Monday. Don't speak to her. 
Ring the bell, go in, she'll want to speak to you. Do not speak to her. <laughs> Sit down, watch her show, say nothing about it. <laughs> Leave the house. Contact me. And suddenly you're involved in espionage. <laughs> you're involved in, uh, you're, but you're certainly involved in a story. It's not just a passive experience. So. Um, what I learnt uh, is just to say yes, and, and uh, if I have any regret, it was the times that I wasn't able to say yes to Ken. There are a lot of people here who said yes to Ken many more times than, than I did. But I said yes enough to Ken to have, have had some extraordinary adventures that I can remember more vividly than most of the other experiences I've ever had. Thank you. <laughs> Terry, can I ask, ask the same question to you? Uh, yeah, it kind of uh, kind of crystallises in two, two moments really. One was the first time I ever spoke to him, where he was looking for a chap called Jeff, and I said, "Well, Je Jeff's not here. He's, he's living in Holland, I think." And Ken said, "Who are you?" And I, I said, "I'm Terry." And he said, "What do you do?" And I said, "I've done some acting." He said, "What are you doing on Saturday?" <laughs> He said, can you do accents? I said, yeah. He said, good, Broadbent's fucked off. You've got his parts. <laughs> and it was, so, yeah, so the first teaching was that there were alternatives. There were alternatives to Saturday. Or your Saturday, certainly. <laughs> um, and so the comedy of, of comedicness and, and, and alternatives happened because he handed me Neil Loram's 14-inch play full of everything that was happening that I knew nothing about when I was growing up. So I got all that. Yeah, and, the, and for me, the other infamous climax was the drunken moment when he pinned me to the wall with a bony finger on my bruised sternum and went, you know what your trouble is? Apart from your incessant desire to orchestrate misery. <laughs> and I, I said, no. What? And he went, you've got a switch. There. And it's off. <laughs> And uh, it's taken me quite a lot of my life to realise that that, um, that moment granted me a huge percentage of my personality. <laughs> I will pass over the question to, to Nina. Um, I, I think there's a lot still to learn from him because there's a lot he sort of suggested to do that I still haven't done. Um, one was to learn how to do Tuvan chanting and go to Mongolia. Um, and, <laughs> I haven't mastered that yet. Um, but the, uh, <laughs> then I'm, I'm remembering just sort of acting, because before ventriloquism, I hung around him when he was directing the warp and, and got a few parts. And it, No, it was when he wrote me a, a, ventrilo a one-woman X-rated ventriloquial farce. And... Um, and he was in it, and he was off on the toilet for the whole thing. So I had to throw my voice to him on loo. And, um, and there were all kinds of things, spirits that went up my nose, and then it wasn't roomy enough, so they moved down to my arse. And I, had to, and I remember whinging, going, I don't want to talk to my arse. 
Um, anyway, I should, you know, I wish I'd, I wish I'd made more of that, you know, properly wiggled my ass. I haven't done it yet. There's a lot still to do. And I remember one time when he was saying, suggesting that I should be his pirate queen and we should live according to the pirate charter. <laughs> um, <laughs> Did you find out what that charter was? I only remember all booty was to be shared. That was the first thing. <laughs> um, and that we would go, give the world their, uh, a language. Um, that, and it was pigeon. Um, and uh, and I, was, I was sort of whinging because it just seemed too much. Well, that was the worst day of his life, he said, when I said I didn't want to be queen I mean I didn't know that he really meant it so much and then when I come when I come round that the next day and he was still in quite a bad mood he was wearing his underpants over his trousers Mine were on the head. <laughs> and he had, uh, he had Tesco shopping bags, so he had been at the shops like that. And, um, and he was mixing dog food in the kitchen, and he said, I, was, I know why I've been having all this trouble now, and, you know, with goddesses and not wanting to be pirate queens and all that. And, uh, and it's because it's impossible to achieve these super things if you're a man who doesn't wear his underpants over his trousers. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, yes. Yeah, so then, it, and he'd call up, and I'd. <laughs> I was always just so sort of scared it was going to be something just too too much, too much, asking too much of me. So I was always putting the brakes on. That's a horrible position to be in when you're up against brilliance. Why, you know? But it's such a strong force. And he would say, "It's like talking to a brick." I remember that being. <sighs> Thank you. I shall pass that, that question over to Prue. Well, Nina really took the words out of my mouth because I was thinking all along, right from the start, if only I had been able to learn as much as Ken had to offer. But it was, it was extremely difficult. I mean, the, the main thing was, um, you know, don't be a dreamer, be a doer. Um, he used to say to me very often, I hear the words, Prue, I hear the words. Um, and, um, you know, so it was, it, it, it was that, uh, that real difficulty of, of... He also taught me in terms of acting, you know, just there are no limits. There are absolutely no limits. And that was wonderful. It was very freeing because, actually, I think my acting probably in the other world, as it were, the, the world I was leaving behind, was... Um, was too big, actually. So it was very nice to be able to be, be, have Ken just enjoying bigger, 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 bolder, bolder. Mm -hmm. So that was fun, you know. And it really was a case of you know, grab the stage and say, I'm here and I'm enjoying myself and it's wonderful. And, uh, you know, it's that, that's what I got from him. And a lot of seeing the funny side, finding the humour, you know, I had under, underpants on the head when I used to get in a very, very bad temper and I would be absolutely beside myself and I'd be really, really going to get absolutely couldn't control it and I'd turn round and Ken would be that's just standing there with his underpants on his head and with that little look, that slight smile just behind the eyes but a complete look of innocence, like, what? What? And, you know, you'd be struggling not to, not to uh, laugh and wanting to carry on being angry, and it was, it was a nightmare. A lot of it. <laughs> a lot of it. 
So, but you remained friends for the whole of your lives, didn't you, together? And you went on holiday to Anglesey twice a year? Yep, that's right. No, I mean, Ken was, Ken, from the age of 26, when I very first met him, um, until uh, the very end, um, we, we, we did. We, we were always friends. I mean, Ken and I were absolutely perfect together when we weren't trying to have a relationship. And um, so it all was absolutely m- magical. Uh, the minute we were trying to have a relationship or we were but either of us with, were with somebody else, you know, but it was a lifelong thing. And, um, and I remember on the last time he was in Anglesey, I was lying in bed and I heard Daisy saying goodbye to him. He was leaving that day. And I was half asleep and I thought, oh, no, no, I can't be bothered. You know, and I heard him say, don't wait, Mum. And I thought, oh, I thought, oh, all right, yeah, yeah. And I got up, gave him the kiss, uh, said bye-bye, drive carefully. And that was the last time I ever saw him. So I'm really glad I got out of bed that day. <laughs> Those are the things, you know, that are so important, yeah. so important. So always, always get out of bed and say goodbye. <laughs> you never know. Thank you, Prue. So, Prue, you, you, were, you were in Luminatus, which takes us all the way back to 1976, yep. I think. And Terry, you were in The Warp and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which, which takes us through the oh, late 70s yeah. into the 80s. Yeah. I was going to ask you about The Hitchhikers, because that's something that rarely gets mentioned. There are certain parts of Ken's career, and maybe he would have preferred that, to, for a, because in, in, in some ways it was Ken's great failure was, the, um, was Hitchhikers when it transferred from the ICA to the Rainbow. Can you tell yeah, us a little he, bit about what that was like? You couldn't have a more magnificent failure. Um, <laughs> it, it was on a grand scale. Um, yeah, I've, I've never bothered analysing what went wrong, so I said nothing went right to analyse it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Hitchhiker. Um, what was your role what, in it? Oh, I was, I was one half of Zaphod Beeblebrox. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want you to play Zaphod, but well, I want you to play one half of him. This is Doug, he's playing the other half. <laughs> Doug's used to being at the front, so you're going to have to go around the back. We're going to strap you on. And you put your head over like that, and, uh, and uh, he said, yeah, we haven't got the two-footed boots yet, but when we do, it'll be much easier to walk. <laughs> and it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and yeah, I ended up in the... Did I end up in the front? No, I was always at the back. I remember, you know, if you wanted a rest in the wings, we had, he had to sit on my lap. Crap. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, the, the opening night the, went up at 7.30. There were 3,000 people turned up for the opening night. It went up at 7.30. And we ran out of scenery at 10 past 8. <laughs> <laughs> Performed the rest of it in a, in a, in a, in a void. Oh. The whale... Uh, it's, <laughs> tails. The whale that fell to earth. They'd built a giant inflatable. It was huge. It was the size of a whale. <laughs> and first night, they launched it from the upper circle. And the dress circle had this fantastic view as it sailed over their heads. And 
Much better view than the stalls who never saw it coming. (laughs) (laughs) Two two writs for personal injury. over Friday morning. So we never saw the whale again. Uh, which was a shame, because it was the highlight. And, and represented 70% of the budget, which is... Why there, why there was not much left. So, but the play, the play had been successful at the ICA. So Hugely. Hugely apparently. successful. How did it go wrong then? Was it just moving to too, too large a venue? Yeah. Ken used to say about casting, he said, you just cast it out there. He said, you don't go and summons them. You, you, although he did, you know, well, that's not fair. He did, he, he did summon a, a few people of, of overt talent, but he would often just throw it out there and go, well, you know, he can be in it because he's turned up. <laughs> and I think what happened with the hitchhiker was I think there was a, a, a degree of availability problem. <laughs> Because Jim had gone down there and, and even John Joyce was off doing some rep or something. And, uh, and I think that the wrong people just turned up. Their, their timing was immaculate. There <laughs> were a couple of honourable exceptions, I hasten to add. But, you know, basically everybody turned up on the Tuesday morning or when they started were, were, couldn't do it that much. Including myself. I mean, I'm not really... Safe or Beeblebrook kind of <laughs> chap. So, no, uh, and, but they were some honourable exceptions. Of course, there were some people who were, who were very good in it. But, yeah, on the whole, we just didn't know what we were doing. And I, I don't know. Did, did Ken keep his enthusiasm for it all the way through? Or did he recognise that it was, it was failing and get frustrated <laughs> with it? Yeah, he was, he was pretty sad about it. It, it, was, it, was, it was not a good time. It was a tough time. It was a very tough time. He tried to cheer us up mid-run by inventing the Royal Dickens Company. And he succeeded. We used to sit in the dressing rooms and type letters from Trevor to the board, and uh, from the board to Trevor, announcing that the RSC was no longer doing Shakespeare, it was only going to do Dickens. <laughs> uh, that's how he amused us. <laughs> Ran in one, one afternoon and said, we've got good news, bad news. <laughs> so the bad news is we can all be done under the Public Mischief Act of 1832. <laughs> good news is the posters are ready. <laughs> so, Terry, you, you were in the original warp in the 70s, and Toby, you were in the... First, was it the first reincarnation of... Oh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what... There were several iterations, I think, because Alan Cox had told me about his experiences of, of doing it, and I was so... Uh, uh, well, uh, continuing what I said before, you know, it, it became an opportunity to meet Ken, and I, and I said, do you think I could do it when they do it again? He said, uh, and I don't know how it happened, but I got the call, uh, we've got a contender, and... Uh, 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 a contender. Uh, we're going to see whether he can do the warp by uh, testing him on his lines. He's from Canada. And, uh, and I said, all right. He said, he claims to know uh, the 24-hour plan. Uh, my immediate sympathy was for this guy. He'd obviously, <laughs> you know, if he did or didn't know, he'd certainly had a tilt at it, you know. And, uh, and he said, 
Trouble is, he can learn nine of the ten plays, but the tenth one keeps falling out of his head. Like <laughs> uh, so if you'd like to come along and uh, test him with us, we're going to see whether he's up to it. And I thought, well, God, if, if he can do it, man, I mean, he's an extraordinary actor. So I went along to... Uh, uh, this is the other thing with Ken, you know, just these little points you should say is, you always got to see parts of London that you didn't know existed. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, be here this time. Okay, I was there. Yeah, basement of a bookshop, oh, Chalk Farm Road, whatever that bookshop was, it was. And we went down, and there were a lot of people there who I'd never met before. And they were all. And there was this contender, like having to prove that he knew the lines. He, he was very much not the person being supported. He was. He was just there, sort of like to prove. <laughs> even though he paid for his own ticket to come over. <laughs> and, and I just felt this huge sympathy for this guy. I was going, how can you treat people like this? And uh, treat him like that, he did. And, uh, and uh, I think a couple of weekends later, you know, I, I, I said... Um, the other problem, you have to stop because these things just bleed into other memories. But uh, he did say, oh, Toby, good. Yeah, you, uh, come here, you're going to play Bob God. Uh, and uh, he said, and... Uh, where's Aliki? Uh, Aliki, over here. Aliki, and this sort of um, Greek actress with, uh, you know, you've got to imagine the basement is not a rehearsal space. It's a kind of, just a basement of a bookshop. Aliki, come over here. Uh, Toby didn't play Bob Cole. You're going to play his wife. And she went, but Ken, I, I'm an academic, you know, I'm from Greece. He said, oh, this is, oh, Toby, this is Aliki Chapel. <laughs> Aliki Chapel. <laughs> Really, your name's a leaky chap? Well, yeah, my name's a leaky chap. Okay. Okay. So a leaky chapel was suddenly about my wife, and we were playing Bob God. I said, "The thing is," uh, and she's, "But Ken, Ken, I can't do Australian accent. It's very simple. Cock me with a squint, like that." And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and sure enough, if you do cock me with a squint, you do get to Australian eventually. Very, you know, it's a very good. As so much of his direction, very yeah. good, practical solution <laughs> to, 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 to clearly, um, a, a, you know, a slightly intractable academic want, not wanting to act in a 24-hour play. You know, and, uh, anyway, we did do it, and I've got visions in my head of what happened, because this guy was so up for it, and I'd never been anywhere near it. I was so naive... Um, because Alan had sort of, you know, he, he, he'd suffered somewhat in doing the 24-hour play. And I said, yeah, so what other parts do you want me to play, Ken? He said, well, you be in one, two, six. Uh, is that for you in four, eight? And then come on at ten when we do the thing. And, uh, and, and, stupid, and then all these people looked at me like, oh, naive, so naive. Because <laughs> they all said, you ask for a part in one and then nine and ten. You don't ask for the middle bit, that's when you sleep. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so we, we, anyway, we did it. And I remember waking up in Brentwood Arts Centre, another place I hadn't uh, visited before, and in Brentwood Arts Centre, and looking over at the contender, who, uh, who seemed to be the only person awake in the room, in the middle of play six or seven. And I thought, woke up for my next cue like that, and there didn't seem to be anyone to act to. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly this was perfectly normal because all the other cast were backstage having a perfectly nice time. Uh, and I sort of went, this is extraordinary. All the audience are asleep. Yeah, and there's this guy still going through the play. Uh, through the play naked, like that. 
And in my mind's eye, actually making love to someone on stage, like that, actually making love. And I, I, in candlelight, and they were so absolutely beautiful. And I was literally like, looking at this going, this is quite the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen. And there's something so beautiful about it. And there's something so wonderful about the faith in the room. There's something that is certainly relates to the origins of why the fuck we do this stuff anyway. <laughs> that is about nothing to do with delivery of a project. It's to do with somehow believing that energy together generates something special. And I remember I actually had to go... When we got to um, the Play 10, uh, and uh, maybe it was Ken that night, I don't know, someone was blowing a horn and Roddy McDevitt came out in this character who had words written all over him. I remember literally... I, I was exhausted, so there's that, but I just like nearly having to go into a quiet corner and cry to myself, and I didn't know why I was crying. And it was something about the endeavour... The sheer endeavour of it and the commitment of all the people I was with and a lament for my own scepticism and a lament for my own inability to say yes always. And I think that there was that in his work, uh, in his, a lot of his writing, that there's a melancholy in his writing. And Daisy had it in her show, Lost, there's a moment in all of his work where you suddenly go, God, this cost must cost something for Ken. Mm. That everyone isn't at this pitch, mm. you know. Like, uh, that everyone isn't up for it all of the time, and uh, I'm fascinated by that in his work. When the work suddenly become very, very serious at some point on a very human level, and I'd sometimes see that in his eyes, you know. When I did the warp a few times, and you'd see it in his eyes, you know, in hour thirteen or something, and he'd be wandering around whichever space we were doing it in, and I go, wow. What does it cost you to be here constantly generating all of this, this stuff? Angry, yeah, he was angry, you know, angry yeah. and resentful and pissed off. But also, you know, he's living this. He has yeah. to live at this pitch. Toby, I just really want to pick up on that because, I mean, that's such a beautiful description of the soul of Ken. And it so often gets left out of the story, you know. We all get the... The, the Kenisms, the funny stories, the, the crazy, the weird. It, it's very much become the sort of go-to Ken. Um, but he was such a good person. He was such a... Um, a he, he was always looking for how do I make this person be the best person they can possibly be. That was really his motivation. How do we give people the most fun they can have? How do we tell... Uh, he, he, you could trust him. I mean, he would be impossible, impossible and, and crazy and ridiculous. But you could always, I'm sure you feel the same, he, you, could all, you always knew you had a really good man there. And that does get forgotten, and it's very important, mm. I think. I, I was going to say that, that often, you know, we talk about Ken's ire right. and his frustration, but actually generosity was, was a big... I, I was one of many, many, many who took a... Uh, an embryonic show to to, um, to Epping Forest and performed it at Ken for two hours, and then you know Ken unfolded his arms and said, "Right, I'll tell you where you're going wrong." Um, um, but he was, yeah, but that incredible generosity yeah. um, of, of ideas uh, and time. When you were talking about a good man, I was remembering one because of the the calls and the any hour of the night, any you know the crazy demands and everything. 
I remember at one point asking him, I said, I just, I've got something to say, but I'm nervous that you'll fly off the handle. <laughs> and he said, well, try, try me. I said, I just think I need a bit more space. And he screamed, space, like space. I've heard women talk about space before. <laughs> <laughs> he talked about it, it was space, just space, 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 space. And then he went, oh, sorry. Is that what you meant by fly off the handle? (laughs) 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 And and as fast as it would accelerate, it was utterly, it completely dropped. That's kind of wonderful. (laughs) And was it was it a would mentorship be a be a suitable word for for part of your relationship with Ken? Uh, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, only insofar as it, he was a mentor for everyone. I mean, not especially me or anything. But um, he did draw me out of myself, but a very sort of quiet actress. I don't know why I thought I wanted to be an actress. Um, but I remember doing... I, I remember one, like, one thing which really seemed to unlock me was when I was doing The Warp and I was playing Meg Masters and she gets her tits out in her first scene. And I was a bit nervous about that. I mean, he went and sent me to a, a Hasidic Jewish orthodontist. <laughs> um, and, and with a pe- picture of Beatrice Dahl, who has a gap between her teeth, and said, get him to make you those. And it was such a funny thing to go to this very religious household that was cut, all rabbis on the walls and scriptures and stuff. And it was a topless picture of Beatrice Dahl <laughs> with the cat, squirting milk out the gap of her teeth onto her breasts. And I, was, <laughs> and I had to say, could, could you make me some of these teeth? And he, and he did. And he, he was like rocking his, his baby in one hand whilst taking my impression. And there were like 11 children in the house. And yeah, I mean, this is like one of many incredible scenes that you have in your... I think, well, what, how did I get there? Anyway, and he, um, so, they, so I had these teeth. I put these teeth in, and then I could do the scene topless, no trouble. It was as if I was wearing a mask, it wasn't really me anymore, nothing really mattered. I thought, just such a brilliant sort of sideways... I mean, he didn't do that so I could do the scene topless. That was just a sort of the collateral of it. But it was amazing to find, like, wow, Ken, you've really, like, thank you. I didn't know teeth could do this. <laughs> <laughs> And, and in terms of your career as a ventriloquist, did, did Ken spot uh, a talent there, or were you goaded into it, or was it a coincidence? No, it really was coincidence. I mean, he, I, I've looked back along... I've reverse-engineered a, a real logic to it, which was that I wasn't... Which was I was sort of a, a clown who didn't want to wear the nose, and so these other characters can show who I can be without me having to do it with that because of my resistance and everything so it was sort of perfect for me in that way but it was accidental because he, he was teaching lots of people ventriloquism mm. and for ages I was sort of thinking well I'm not going to get on the Ken train with the vent thing because that's not really something I like ventriloquism <laughs> um, and, uh, and then yeah I was at the Royal Shakespeare Company trying to be a normal actress after having done the walk and it doesn't work because you can't go back <laughs> um, <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> and I wrote to him. So he'd send, he'd send envelopes with uh, his own address on them. He said, I want to write a book to an act, 
to about, act, about acting. So whilst you're at the Royal Shakespeare, if you've got any questions about acting, put them in these envelopes and I'll send you these chapters as answers. And Sis Berry, the voice coach of the Royal Shakespeare Company, had said that I had the kind of voice that she couldn't listen to. <laughs> so I put that in one of my questions and he wrote back... And no, he didn't write back. It, several questions had got chapters, but that one got a phone call going, oh, if you want to know about voice, um, you have to be a ventriloquist and you'll learn to be a, a vocal acrobat in a way that Sisberry doesn't understand and, but you have to promise that you'll do some homework and so then he sent a teach yourself ventriloquism kit which was a box that had kind of a, you know like a lollipop stick and various 31 booklets um, and, I, and, a, and a puppet and a big puppet at the stage door so you can't say no to that gift you can't not give it a go and he, you know, he went to those lengths. You can't, yeah. So I practiced, and then, and then I practiced on my own in my bedroom, and thought, oh God, he's right. This is so fun, and and I filmed myself to, so that I would have video evidence that I had tried it, so that he couldn't shout at me. He could look at it, and he could say, okay, oh yeah, sorry, maybe not for you. But when I watched it back, it looked like two people had been talking in the room, and I just got that moment of going, holy shit. I didn't feel like I was talking to a real person, but it really looks like I um... Could, Was Ken any good at ventriloquism? No. No. <laughs> no. There was no, nothing like a still mouth. Well, no, nothing like it, you know. Did anyone on the stage um, get subjected to the Jackie Chan weekend marathon of... You, you did, Toby. You did. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about what, what that was like? Uh, yeah, uh, it was great. He, he uh, it, it got part. It, I think it later became part of Hyphenator. But he said, uh, "Listen, uh, you know, Friday night, come round, bring some mates like that." And I said, oh, "Okay, uh, go uh, go around to his house." Um, uh, I've been to a séance, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, and uh, the medium said she, uh, she had Laurence Olivier on the line. And uh, did anyone there have any questions for Sir Laurence? Uh, and, uh, and I said, um, um, did you, Ken? And he went, well, yeah, I uh, did. I have a very important question for Sir Laurence. I asked, who was the, you know, in Sir Laurence's opinion, who was the greatest living actor? And the answer came back, Jackie Chan. <laughs> and... Uh, and in order to check out whether Sir Lawrence was right, because Ken didn't know anything about Jackie Chan, he'd set about, uh, set about watching Jackie Chan, and it's a substantial career. Uh, he'd watched the whole lot of Jackie Chan, and then he'd watched all the DVD extras. Which means, as you would imagine, the stunts, the failed stunts, the, stu the training, all of that. I went, right, and I went, now some of Ken's shows are some of the best things I've ever seen. Some of them are quite definitely works in progress. <laughs> <laughs> this sounded like it might be a work in progress. But I went, yeah, okay, and I'll bring some friends along and I told them, the, the, yeah, yeah, that sounds like fun. And I said, he's gonna prove to us that Jackie Chan is, you know, the greatest living actor. So we went round to his house and we sat down and there was, uh, John Lloyd was there, and I thought, John Lloyd, and John Joyce was there, no chop. And it was, 
but, you know, I can't remember who was there. John Joyce was always there. And uh, uh, there were uh, various, various people. And uh, sat down. And about five and a half hours later, I literally... I, I, I really, Ken, I really believe it. I believe he's the greatest actor. <laughs> I have to go. We <laughs> <laughs> oh, haven't even seen his best stuff yet. <laughs> I have to go, Ken. My brother's asleep. You know, my friend is bored out of his mind. They're not believers. They're, I suspect they're not even seekers. Uh, you know, I would count myself an honorary seeker, but even seekers have to sleep when they've got to get up early in the morning. You know, so, uh, you know, so, so I left it, and you know, inevitably with that, always that sinking feeling, oh, maybe I disappointed him, but you know, I got another invitation later, and I was really pleased that it showed up in a, in a show because it was, uh, it was an extra, extraordinary, boring for long periods, you know, boring. Jackie Chan's a good actor in many ways, but... <laughs> We don't go up for the same jobs, you know. <laughs> One of the things that came out from the from the radio interview was was that realization that that a lot of time with Ken was was being subjected to monologues um, that you would later experience on stage, and as, and as somebody. Uh. And <laughs> Daisy and I used to be, we used to listen to these stories and they'd start and there was, he was just telling us these lovely stories and that we'd be going, oh, no, oh, and then you'd start laughing because he was so funny and then suddenly you'd go, oh, I see, you're practising your show on me because they were so good and so mm. polished and, and too funny for words. So, yeah. you know, it's yeah, really you striking. did that all the time. I watched the last, I just could come in for the last bit of the show and this is something I would say about him as an actor. Um, I, I think it's really obviously in all his shows, you know, and all the anecdotes we talk about this kind of rep training that he had. And what's really striking watching him deliver um, deliver these talks that sometimes become shows that go back into being talks or extended anecdotes, whatever, is the lack of um and er uh and you know what I mean and all of that kind of pocket fluff of language, you know, that he just does not... He, it, it, there must be some in somewhere, but it's an extraordinary feat of improvisational... And we were talking about him not being good at improvisation, but all of that stuff. Yes, he may have thought it through in his mind, but it's coming out uh, in this compelling flow. It's an extraordinary achievement, you know, when you can be that articulate on the go. And, yeah, he had strategies like... That I think he'd observed with comics and observed with, you know, with other acting, the business of being in a rep show, having to know how to fake knowing stuff. It also massive interest in, um, you know, actors constantly get take the piss out of because they're not, they're somehow not academic in some way. Somehow, you know, actors aren't. And he literally his interest in theory whatever the theory was. And I often, you know, often you find uh, people involved in making theatre are interested in the shape of ideas. You know, they may not have steeped themselves in the research and uh, they, they, they know it for as long as they're working on a project. And, and you've got the feeling with him that he was like, is there a sensational aspect to this theory that mm. I could use for this show? Mm. You know, you hear it with right. Daisy last night going, man! Wow! That kind of uh, beat in the shows where 
Wow, imagine if that was, suppose that was, that was so. And that, that aspect is really interesting in his shows, the, the, the interest in ideas, almost for ideas' sake, for the drama of ideas. Wouldn't it be great if life were that sensational. And in real life, you, you find yourself getting comedically excited at some point and you think of something vaguely witty to say. Well, apart from the faint nasal hover that immediately attaches itself to anything potentially <laughs> funny, you suddenly find your words coming out in a different order. Mm. And it's Ken's order. Mm-mm. Ken, mm. Ken rearranges your words as they yes. come out of your mouth. And, 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 they, and, and your emphasis changes. And uh, this happens to most of uh, <laughs> us Ken compadriots, yes. so whether we're together or, or, or with other people. You can get a bit excited about something, <laughs> suddenly you can riff. Because he, he, he taught you a, a, a way of thinking. Again, for me, it's big, small, small, big. That you make the slightest thing um, reflective of, of, of the biggest thing. There's been in one of his shows, I remember, where he uses the phrase in the space between heartbeats. I can't remember which show it was, and somebody says, how long will yeah. that take, And He said, in the space between heartbeats. And then he stops and he says, I have first heard that phrase. I, I, I can't remember the anecdote exactly. I first heard the phrase, um, it, was, it was spoken by an Australian while I was over touring in Australia, and I said, it's a beautiful phrase. Um, I'd like to have it. And the guy said, well, it's yours. And he said, well, Ken said, well, I need to buy it from you. you. So it's worth something. So they bartered for a while and agreed it was worth $15. Uh, and, and you know that in that moment, Ken was already formulating the monologue, you know, the little anecdote, and thinking that in itself is worth the $15 because I've got the story to tell as well about the fact that I gave him $15. The beauty of that, you know, that way of thinking. Um, maybe, maybe it's time to, um, to throw it open to audience Q&A. Um. Uh, because Ken was particularly involved in closing the gap between life and art, making himself a work of art, and confusing it and rolling it about so he couldn't see the, the, di- the difference, did you find, astounding himself, did you find, not just professionally, but personally, you became astounded by the way your life carried on? Did, you, did magical things happen, basically? I didn't see the show that was just on. But I, re- I remember him saying um, story for me is far more important than anything that could happen in life. Uh, it's certainly the story I'm involved in. He was writing the ventriloquism show at the time. So, uh, the story I'm involved in like that is, is more important to me than the, whatever is in my, my life at the moment. And, but that's because it's a better vehicle for truth. I think, story. But I, I, I'm, I'm not the best on this subject, but I, I've also... I believe that now of my life, that the story I could tell of it, it will give it more meaning than the day-to-day thing a little bit. I don't know. That's not quite your question. <laughs> I mean, he certainly created situations um, to... I, I, I only just remembered this, but... <coughs> He actually sent me off to look for Thomas Pynchon in America. Um, and, I mean, I, I, I scarcely got through Gravity's Rainbow. I didn't know what I was doing, but I did go. And I did go and stay with Robert Anton Wilson and Arlen and um, their son. And I did have lots of adventures all along the way, all because there was one little, you know, let's have a story here, let's see what this, what this creates. And certainly, you know... I think as he got older, 
he created more and more and more. He, he, he took his life so that he was going in search of stories. Mm. Would, would, I, would anyone agree with me or have I got that wrong? Mm. I, I think that's what he, he, he did more and more. Um, you talked about words coming out differently after, you know, finding yourself almost like talking through Ken. Um, I'm just wondering if you can expand a little bit about that process. Were you aware of it? when it started to happen or is it something that you are aware of more retrospectively I mean I think it's really interesting that you know he's got such a way with words and to find yourself kind of being able to almost channel that in a certain way or have that kind of thought patterns I think it's really interesting I just wondered if you'd comment a bit more about it I'm not, I'm not sure I can because it, it, it is completely kind of unconscious but you know when I where, where does it exist? It, it, it just kind of exists on the on the peak of your epiglottis, quite naturally. It just gets you overexcited. You start running your mouth off. Um, I don't know. Different techniques for different people. I did a bit of Peter Cook, and you had to learn about the third eye. Because you have to speak through the third eye to get anywhere near Peter Cook, uh, because that's where the thoughts come from. We can have no. They, they, don't, they go. They come down, <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, it keeps coming out my mask whenever I put a mask on people when I'm doing that mask touch I'll be talking to them and I'm doing their voice and I'm like oh shit it's Ken again he <laughs> <laughs> keeps coming through men, Pi- women, children anyway you know Pippa wrote a lovely sentence the other week I just remember she said oh yeah Ken Ken oh I'd really miss him but he's fucking everywhere <laughs> 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 um, can we have a big round of applause, please, for Toby, Terry, David, Nina, and Prue? Thank you. Ken Campbell, The Seekers Podcast, was produced and presented by Daisy Campbell and David Bramwell, with kind permission from the Ken Campbell Estate. Music was by Horton Jupiter. It was funded by Arts Council England. The disembodied voice of Ken was Jeremy Stockwell. Ken Campbell interview with kind permission of Sheridan Thayer. <laughs>